0: Welcome to the Development Podcast. I'm Raka Banerjee, alongside Paul Blake.
1: On this episode, a Development Community Roundtable. One year on from the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, What can we learn from the response effort?
2: What uh, COVID has shown is that we need to come to a watering hole. Whatever our um, political leanings or ideological views, we have to solve
0: this. What have been the biggest challenges?
3: This global crisis requires more international solidarity and more international
4: action. When you're faced with a crisis on this scale, there's a premium on speed and decisiveness. And what's next?
5: It's a moment in... In time in which the world can reimagine itself differently. All that over the next few minutes
0: here on The Development Podcast.
1: It's hard to believe that it was just about one year ago that the COVID-19 pandemic began disrupting lives and livelihoods around the world.
0: In that time, nearly 2 million people have lost their lives to the deadly virus, and millions more have had their livelihoods disrupted. No one has been left untouched by the effects of this crisis.
1: The pandemic has had particular impacts on the world's poorest and has been a a once-in-a-generation challenge for the development community.
0: So in our first episode of 2021, we wanted to convene a roundtable of development experts to get a sense of what's worked, what hasn't, and what needs to be done next.
1: Well, I'm happy to say that our invitation was accepted by an all-star panel of development practitioners, including the World Bank's Managing Director, Axel von Trotzenberg, Henrietta Forey, the executive director of UNICEF, economist and author Dembisa Moyo, and Kevin Watkins, the CEO of Save the Children. They join me now down the line. So Axel, I want to start with you. The, the pandemic has been this major challenge for institutions and organizations across the development space. How would you assess the initial response so far? What's, what's gone well and, and where have there been sort of lessons learned?
3: I think that uh, throughout crises we have learned a couple of things. Uh, certainly at the bank, that during crisis times you got to be fast, decisive, and you have to come with massive support. I think that uh, we have uh, um, stepped up to that challenge uh, in last year. Normally, our our programs are in the order of forty-two billion dollars. Last year was seventy-one billion. So uh, it is a step up, particularly because COVID uh, has its special challenges and particularly the poorest countries needed massive support. So we have been able to develop specific COVID-related operations to the tune of $25 billion. I think this is, in general, is a good response for, for, for the bank but it is not sufficient. What we have needed, we need. This is a massive global crisis and everybody has to do their maximum. I think we have uh, pushed on debt relief for the poorest countries, the debt service uh, suspension initiative. I think it is to a good start, but it is an incomplete start because uh, quite a few creditors, particularly private creditors are not participating. And in in this sense, It is not providing the full benefits to the countries. Also, what is not working so well is that I think this global crisis requires more international solidarity and more international action. And what we are seeing is that countries are very, very busy with themselves. But the unfortunate truth is that the poorest countries are left behind. And I think this is a great concern, certainly to the World Bank, that we need to do a lot more for them. And what we are seeing right now already with the vaccines, it is absolutely spectacular that vaccines have been developed so quickly that they are now being deployed. But the truth of the matter is also that the industrialized countries have essentially bought up all what is available and leaving developing countries without sufficient coverage, and this is clearly a clear uh, concern to us.
1: I have a bunch of questions for you on vaccines, and and we'll get there in a second, but Henrietta, just picking up on Axel's point there about internationalism and and coordinated action, there's been this criticism that the international response has not been as strong or coordinated as it needed to be. In your view, is that criticism fair?
5: Well, it is in that we don't think as a world as yet, but I think it's coming fast as a world. We're really learning from each other what other countries are doing, and I think we're learning that development is very fragile. To Axel's point, um, poverty is on the rise and inequality is growing. But there's um, one area that I think you you're mentioning about um, COVID. The fact that a COVAX facility exists, that we are a buying mechanism for the world, for the least developed countries, is remarkable in itself, and that it's designed to coexist with private buying. So the world is just getting on top of this notion of how the private sector and the public sector can work together seamlessly and for a synergy for the world. And this is a remarkable and very important shift in what the world learns and knows.
1: And, and Kevin, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, what should have been done differently over the, the past year in your view?
4: Well, I I think Axel makes a really important point that when you're faced with a crisis on this scale, there's a premium on speed and decisiveness. And for the poorest countries and the poorest people, you know, you don't need liquidity in 18 months time or two years time. You need it now. You don't need the safety net bolstering in a year's time. You need it bolstering now. And I think for all of the great work that the bank has done, in particular, the heroic effort to front load Ida, you know, in the end, front loading is front loading. It's not new and additional resources. And what we needed from the major shareholders of the institutions was a a clear commitment to a supplementary Ida budget, new and additional resources. We needed a clear commitment to a new special drawing rights issue to bolster liquidity in the poorest countries, and I, I think Axel is being a little diplomatic on his on the um, on the debt initiative. In the you know the these the the IDA countries uh, will
1: and just just for folks who who might be at home wondering what you mean by IDA, that's the component of the World Bank Group that works with the poorest countries doing concessional and yes,
4: concessional lending arm um, of the World Bank and the, the this is a group of countries around seventy four countries that are also eligible for debt relief under the new debt relief initiative. Now this is a group of countries that have scheduled debt payments of around forty five billion. many of them are teetering on the 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 the, the brink of effective bankruptcy. Uh, actual debt relief is in the order of four billion, and that's largely because private sector creditors and to some degree china appear to take the view that they have an exemption from participation, although the G20 uh, initiative itself is very clear that the private sector are supposed to participate on the same terms as everybody else. Now, you know, uh, actually Henrietta and I have called in a a piece that we wrote together for these debt liabilities, these largely unpayable debt liabilities for some countries need to be converted into investments for children, because ultimately, this is also a crisis of intergenerational justice. Elderly people and adults may bear the immediate health effects, but it's the poorest children who are paying for this crisis through their health, through their education, and with their future. And th- that, that's why it's so imperative that we get these new resources and the debt relief to support recovery for children.
1: And you're, you're picking up right there on, on the next topic that I want to, to bring up, which is inequality. One, one last question, though, on this topic of kind of internationalism and that I want to go to Dambisa for that. And, and Dambisa, I'm curious your thoughts about the, the sort of international response. And I want to take it one step further and ask, do you think there will be a sort of lasting impact on multilateralism and institutions uh, going forward?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for uh, including me in this discussion. Um, You know, at a very high level, um, much of what has been said is not really surprising or objectionable. Um, Of course, you're in the middle of a crisis. We would like to have have all hands on deck. Uh, We have to be considerate around HIPIC. We have to be considerate about um, deploying resources um, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Um, But I do think that there's also, um, in terms of lessons learned, Um, You know, I I wrote many years ago uh, about essentially this risk that, you know, we were going to find ourselves um, if we continued to just depend on systemic aid without forcing governments to take on more responsibility, we'd find ourselves in a place of vulnerability um, that we're experiencing now. Uh, a world in which we have low economic growth. We're talking about income inequality. That is not just between developed and developing countries. Even within developed countries, we're grappling with issues of income inequality. Um, it's all well and good to say, oh, we need more resources. And I, by the way, last summer, in, July, um, in the middle of the summer of 2020, I wrote an article in the Economist magazine arguing that, you know, when the facts have changed, we need to change the approach and that we did need some more support um, for emerging markets. But the, the reality is that look at the debt levels and you know debt to GDP ratios. Um, look at the deficits, look at the slow growth environment, the challenges of uh, uh, tech- risk, risk and challenge of technological unemployment. Um, climate change. I mean, there's a whole list of things that the traditional donors are grappling with. And so, yeah, it would be nice to get more money and more focus and resources to these emerging markets. But this is precisely what I was talking about, um, you know, all those many years ago, we always had a responsibility to get emerging market countries to take responsibility for their budget and for the destiny of their Economies. Um, your specific question around international internationalism um, and globalization. I am a globalist. I've never been shy to say that. But I'm also a realist, and the reality is, this attitude of every nation for itself to me is unsurprising because ultimately, countries um, and politicians. Um, are elected or de-elected by their populations. And that, you know, whether we like it or not, it might be a very cynical approach to the world, but we're in a a point of extremes. And, um, you know, take your pick, if you're in the United States, Americans are expecting their government to deliver to them as soon as possible. And there is an imperative that they do that, not just for the U.S. health uh, or the U.S. economy, but also ultimately for the global economy. So, you know, as somebody who's born and raised in Zambia, um, you know, I, 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 I know very much the concerns around China and lending and private sector, but, you know, we, we have to come to the realization that the world of um, globalization and the world of uh, liberal democracy are aberrations. If you look at the sweep of history, they are not the, um, the rule. And, uh, and I think going forward, we have to be a little bit more innovative in our thinking um, as we continue to evolve and defend the Bretton Woods um, organizations.
1: And both say you there, and and Kevin before you were were talking about inequality. You know, I think you said it very well. It's not just between high income countries and low income countries. It's also within those countries. At the uh, you know th- this has been called the, pan- the inequality pandemic over the the past twelve months or so. Poor countries, poor families being worst hit. Kevin, I'm I'm wondering where have you seen that borne out in your work specifically.
4: Well, it's interesting you ask that question because I think this is one of those rare moments where it's not just that every country is facing a similar, uh, the same pandemic, but it's also the case that people in the richest countries of the world can look in their own backyards and uh, who is bearing the cost here. In my own country, in the UK, we've seen a, a huge increase in child poverty we've seen a big increase in inequality gaps in education because it's precisely the poorest families who don't have access to the technologies, to the distance learning opportunities. So it is, as as everybody has said, I think, widening inequalities in the UK. But I, I, I think there's a mirror image of this in the inequality gaps between the richest and the poorest countries and within the poorest countries because if we don't tackle the liquidity Problems. If we don't build the safety nets that are necessary, it will hamper recovery. It will dislocate health systems. It will undermine education systems. And this is precisely where the scarring effects for the next generation will come into play. And what, what I would say to Dambisa's point, I you know, I, I don't think anybody on this call would question the responsibilities of governments in the poorest countries to act decisively on behalf of their citizens. but. This is a crisis which, let's face it, the poorest countries didn't engineer. This is an exogenous shock on an epic scale, on a scale proportionate to the Great Depression in many countries. And it has been disappointing, I think, that the fiscal response from the international institutions, the liquidity response from the international institutions has been found wanting. And that has added to the pressure on the poorest families in those countries and is a force in itself exacerbating inequality you know we've got the richest countries in the world allocating something like 15 percent of gdp to recovery you know they've rewritten fiscal policy they've torn up monetary policy rule books and yet the shareholders of the imf and the world bank the major shareholders haven't authorized and enabled the bank to do an equivalent exercise in the poorest countries. And that is where multilateralism has failed, in my view.
1: Axel or or Dembisa, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah,
4: well, um, I think uh,
3: it is very clear that these needs are enormous. I mean, just building on uh, Kevin's uh, argument is that industrialized countries have indeed spent 15, sometimes 20% of their GDPs. The emerging markets were at maybe 6% of GDP of uh, of stimulus packages, and the poorest countries less than 2%. So here you see the uh, very, very clear. We have said we need absolutely more resources. And so we have been able to lean forward largely because we have been front-loading IDA. But we will need more. We will be engaged with uh, with, with the donor community on this. But it is a, a challenge, and and I, I think this is problem. And but I also don't want to say it's only the uh, the, the poorest countries. There are many lower middle income countries that are hurting as well. Uh, you know, they, they can uh, whether you are in Central America in Ecuador. Or you uh, are uh, in in Asia. I think this is what These are countries that need a lot of support, and here are limits uh, 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 clearly because we, we don't have the, the firepower uh, that uh, this crisis would uh, require. And I think that is uh, where where the challenge we have, and it uh, and, and and the countries
1: feel that. Can you talk to me a little bit about you know, building on this idea of the inequality pandemic, some of the other sort of factors that, that play in here. So I'm thinking things like fragility and conflict or even like gender dynamics or the impact on people in, in an informal sector. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well,
3: I think that uh, unfortunately the fragile states are usually the worst off. There is an increase in concentration of extreme poverty there. But uh, when you had such a crisis, they, they will need that uh, support, and you see it very very clearly. We are making a, a strong case. We have been building this up. Right now, one third of or thirty about one third of our resources for the poorest countries go to the fragile countries. But it is very clear they need more, and they need more attention. I think that the other groups, what you were talking about, the gender dimensions, we are extremely uh, concerned about uh, gender-based violence, domestic violence that has been off the charts. Now, this is not an income phenomenon. It is all over the place, but it is clearly a a major concern. We are very concerned about the education chance. Around a billion kids at one stage, there were 1.6 billion kids out of school. But the kids who remain out of school are mainly in developing countries. And what is worse, that a lot of girls are affected. And once they are out of school, there is a real risk that they will not return. And that means first a discrimination, lack of opportunity and lack of a future. So these are the things that I think we all have been uh, uh, raising attention to. Uh, and I think we will need to, to continue to be very, very loud on this because these are the development challenges that uh, that risk uh, 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 setting us back by years. So this is one of the things we have to uh, focus on certainly in this year.
1: And, and Henrietta, for folks who uh, might need a reminder, you're the executive director of the of UNICEF, the, the UN's UN Children's Education Fund. I was talking to some colleagues a couple of weeks back and and they had calculated that at the height of the COVID uh, sort of led lockdowns, more than 160 countries had mandated some form of school closures. That means that something like 1.5 billion children and youth were impacted in some way by the closing or partial closings of their school. And I'm curious, you know, are, are we facing a, a lost generation of of, of children and youth here in in your view? And and if so, or if not, what is the impact gonna be over the Uh, long-term?
5: Paul, I think we are facing a real concern here. This has the chance of having a lost generation. Many um, students are now out of school for a second year. And for many, it looks like they may be out for a third year. And this makes a big difference. What happens when you're not in school is that you begin to forget what you have learned, Um, that factor we've been studying. And just after being out of school for six weeks, you can regress um, uh, into just a a lower level of memory and of learning. So being out of school for years is very, very difficult. Um, What's happening for many of the young people is that if they do not go to school, it prevents them from competing in a modern economy. They're not getting the skills and it isolates them from what's going on in the world. And so that has two effects. One that Axel was talking about, we really worry about the poorest children in countries and we particularly worry about the girls. And as Dambisa and I will tell you, it is essential to educate girls within any community, but um, many of them are not returning to school, either because of school fees or because of early child marriage or work at home. And this is an important shift for the world. It is one that we have to really focus on and write. So what Axel and Kevin were talking about with you know, being early and fast at scale with financial help is important. What the World Bank has done in the past year is to step up in a way we've never seen it. Um, our programs, UNICEF and World Bank, have tripled in size. We need that everywhere. The national governments need help and the world as a at large needs help, but we need it for distance learning, remote learning in high-tech, low-tech, and no-tech situations, or we will
4: indeed have a lost generation. Could I just add to the point that Henrietta has made and, and Axel earlier? <clears throat> and I think it, it's really impossible to overstate the importance of this because you know, the pandemic is a public health crisis, which is self-evident, and the world is, is aware of that. But it's also a global education crisis on a scale that is unprecedented, And will have potentially unprecedented consequences because we know that progress in education is so closely linked to virtually every other indicator in development, whether it's poverty reduction, immunisation, opportunities for girls and women. And even as schools are opening and and I'm getting a lot of reports on this from my colleagues uh, across low income countries in particular, even as schools reopen, What what we're seeing is that fewer children are going back than would have been anticipated. Now, if you look at the data that the bank and UNICEF and ourselves have produced, there are very good reasons for that. Malnutrition is going through through the roof. Child poverty has increased by around 140 million since the start of the pandemic. Now, children who are hungry and living in poverty with all the pressure on them to be, you know, to be forced into labour markets or early marriage in the case of girls, are not prime candidates for learning. That's why we've been calling for a global recovery plan in education. And unfortunately, what we've actually seen in education is a bunch of very fragmented, very small scale uncoordinated initiatives, whereas you know, this is really an opportunity to make sure that when children come, first of all, to get children back into school through cash transfers and strength and safety nets. But when they're back in school, ensuring that there are resources uh, in the country to put them through what are called accelerated learning programs so that they can catch up. Now, the tragedy is that as they go back into school, education budgets are being hollowed out. And that brings us right back to Axel's starting point, is that the bank and the fund uh, need the resources to put in place the plan that will stop these awful scarring effects for the next generation.
1: Debbie, it sounded like you wanted to get in there a second ago.
4: When I think
2: about the laundry list that has been mentioned, women um, falling behind, lack of schooling, poverty, lack of of access, food um, issues, lack of vaccines. I mean, this world that we'll be describing right now is a world in which Billions of people in the emerging markets live in normal circumstances and have done over multiple decades, um, and so in that regard, in some strange perverse way, what COVID has done is to really highlight not just for the developing world, but also in the in the developed world where these issues are playing out, including domestic violence, which was also mentioned. Um, I think it's it's brought into sharper focus. These problems, Um, my country, uh, Zambia, a country of birth, was um, independent in 1964. It's still grappling with this suite of problems, despite the interventions um, that the World Bank and other uh, organizations have try to address um, in many, uh, many different iterations. So I'm not trying to be a naysayer, I am trying to be quite constructive here. Yes, um, I think most of us think having more money, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, in terms of uh, stimulus packages to these emerging markets would be better, having more access to vaccines, food, education, etc. But, you know, let's, let's not delude ourselves or um, ignore the fact that, th- that these are challenges that the emerging markets and country, many countries have been suffering for decades, um, and somehow we've been quite okay, um, or you know, or certainly at the margin, quite okay um, with with this going on, um, you know, in in spades uh, around the world. So uh, you know, again, I, I'm not at all trying. To... Uh,
3: David, I don't question that uh, there are these 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 issues. The development shows issues have been around indeed for decades. But there is a delta and this delta of this crisis is is deep. I mean, this this COVID is unique and and it has hit with full force. What is worse is that I think uh, many of the developing countries are even more vulnerable because uh, sometimes the international support that they would need to get uh, is more difficult uh, to, to obtain because some of the industrialized countries themselves are having problems. But what I think from our point is important to, to, to say is this COVID is global. This COVID has an impact and it could have um, a far worse lasting impact on uh, economies in Africa than, let's say, Germany. And because German, the German economy is more resilient than like say the Zambian economy. And that deserves attention. And I think what certainly uh, we are saying, but also I think the UN system is saying, or Save the children, I think is, is hitting this, that you cannot just look inward, but you need to keep uh, an outward look. And also that there is international solidarity necessary because these, these countries will not make it alone
2: i agree Thank with that you. i just i think I, the only thing i would add to that is that that you know, we're asking for multilateralism and globalization at precisely the time when you know, again, even before COVID, there was evidence of deglobalization in trade and capital flows, anti-immigration sentiment, concerns about splits in standards, and the lack of coordination on many public good issues like climate change. So you know, we are we, and, and I'm not again suggesting that we should not we should give up, but I am suggesting that we are asking for a very heavy lift when we have spent multiple decades, um, and I would argue with lots of great intentions. Um, but ultimately, our execution has been poor. Otherwise, Zambia and many other countries around the world would not have been in the as vulnerable position of dependency on outsiders as
4: they find themselves in now. Could I, uh, well, could I just um, maybe add to that and, and maybe disagree? Definitely. Agree- and I think
1: Henrietta is trying to get in oh, as no, well. I'm sorry, so, sorry Henrietta. No, no. Uh, whoever would like to go first, either of you. Please, uh, Henrietta.
5: So, thank you. Um So, There are things that we can be doing now that will change. Um, As a world, we have not had the most progress that we have wanted or that we've dreamed about, but technology has come to our assistance in that area of education. We have the chance now to connect every school in the world to the internet. We have not had that in the past. It means that a country like Zambia does not have to go back to where it was. It means that it can step forward. And to Axel's point, what they need for that is financing and funding so that they can make that leap. If we could get the other half of the world that is not connected to the internet connected to the internet it would change education it would change the skills that young people are learning and they could learn what they needed to learn to make a life for themselves eight out of ten are going to have to be entrepreneurs they're going to have to make their own jobs that's going to be a a driver productivity driver for all of us but it's a moment in time in which the world can reimagine itself differently and to take advantage of that we need institutions like the World Bank and UNICEF and Save the Children and thought leaders like Dambisa.
1: Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So, Raka, I was recently listening to this story about a young Rwandan entrepreneur who started a business to provide people with access to clean water. It was totally interesting. You've got to go check it out.
0: Oh, yeah. Where was it?
1: So it's from the Creating Markets podcast by our friends over at the International Finance Corporation. That's the IFC, part of the World Bank Group. It's a show about entrepreneurs, investors, but also about market opportunities in emerging countries. If any of that interests you, you should definitely subscribe.
0: Oh, yeah. I uh, actually saw it pop up in my um, Apple podcast app the other day. Is one of those you know, shows I might like.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and for anyone else out there, if it sounds like something that you're into, subscribe to the Creating Markets podcast wherever you listen to your podcast podcasts, Apple, Spotify, any other platform as the Creating Markets podcast by the IFC. One thing that keeps coming up throughout this conversation is vaccines and they seem, you know, to be this this global game changer. So to to sort of move the direction and move the conversation in that direction, perhaps Axel I can start with you and and could you just give us a sense of what the global community is doing to increase Fair, equitable access to these effective vaccines that are that have that have come onto the market in the past few months.
3: So I think that the game changer is with the speed with which a new vaccine has been developed. This is extraordinary and is in the end good news for the international community. Uh, what is not so good is that I think we try to learn from the swine flu of 12 years ago, where industrialized countries bought essentially all the vaccines through the creation of COVAX, where the intention was to have a fair access to, of everybody to vaccines. And everybody signed up. But my fear is that many act actually didn't act in the same spirit. The result is that industrialized countries have uh, secured most of the vaccines in some countries, they have actually uh, 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 they have actually uh, uh, five uh, five shots per person available. So that is where we are, and this is certainly at this stage one of the most difficult challenges as we start with the rollout to ensure that indeed real access, uh, access is provided to these vaccines, to a, a particularly of the poorest countries. And uh, so I would certainly challenge many uh, industrialized countries to be aware of this, but also to share more because otherwise, uh, the prospects of having uh, reasonable access to vaccine by, the, by the, the poorest countries will be limited. And this is a great concern to us.
4: Uh, I do feel that this pandemic ought to have taught all of us a couple of things, which is, one, there is a shared vulnerability in our condition as part of a human family, and two, that this principle of solidarity is not an abstract idea and where you see it comes to, to, to the fore uh, i think most critically and most self-evidently is in relation to vaccines because it's not only the right thing to do that we should have equity with respect to protection from this awful disease it, it also turns out it's a smart thing to do because you know and, unless you beat it everywhere in the last analysis you beat it nowhere and axel's right we we have set up these facilities the covax facility and the ACTA accelerator facility, which were intended to ensure uh, an equitable distribution of the vaccines as they came on stream. Now, both of those facilities are massively underfunded. And we've got the richest countries essentially cor- cornering the market. And I think not viewing the problem uh, as they should be viewing it in a, in a multilateral way of saying, that, you know, what, what do we need to do from a social justice and equity a fairness perspective to combat this uh, appalling disease and by the way it's not just the vaccine it's also access to medical oxygen and the therapeutic treatment and the protective equipment so I would really hope you know if there's one thing that should really cut across political divides whether you're on the left or the right your view on the world on multilateralism or globalization this is just the right thing to do and it's the smart thing to do
5: So at UNICEF, we are really working hard to implement all of the ideas that Axel and Kevin and Dambisa have been talking about. We are asking countries who have surplus uh, purchase orders in if they can share them with us in COVAX so that we can get them out to the developing world. Uh, But vaccines are coming through our doors. Now we have about half the world's vaccines coming through our doors because they are for childhood diseases like measles and polio. But this year, 2021, we should have another 2 billion vaccines, and these are for COVAX. So as the vaccines come through, it is then important to make sure that they are approved in the countries, that they're allocated among the countries, that there is a readiness. And UNICEF and the World Bank are working together with countries for readiness. The the priorities that you place on your own population as to who gets um a shot first, what does the cold chain look like? How about training of the healthcare workers? Because it is not easy with vaccines with different um, uh, operational um, uh, syringes and other uh, parts of vaccination to train the local staff to know and understand the different vaccines. And we have to inform the public to take a vaccine so that they get vaccinated, that vaccines work, that they save lives, and we need the funding. So if all of those come together, it's a massive undertaking, but we will only do it as a group. And this could change the world and be a real game changer for all of us.
1: Dembisa, being an economist, I'm hoping to, to pick your brain about this. The private sector is going to play a pretty big role. I mean, it has played a big role in developing these vaccines. It's going to play a big role in getting the vaccines to people, to the clinics, and and uh, it ultimately be that link between the factory and and uh, getting it into people's arms. Could you talk about both the 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 role of the private sector in in the rollout of the vaccine, and also how the private sector has been impacted uh, over the past twelve months?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's it's you know no surprise. Private sector has been a critical partner. Um, they've um, you know shown themselves willing and able to work with government and multilateral institutions. Um, We were already in uh, in an era of a move away from the traditional financial shareholder uh, primacy into the stakeholder capitalism. So many companies and organizations already had planning um, and thinking around broadening the utility function of why businesses exist and how they can be much more participatory in, uh, in, in society. Um, I happen to serve on the board of three m, which is um, the largest producer of masks, the n ninety five masks. Um, I'll tell you, um, you know, before Covid hit in earnest, i didn't we didn't even talk about masks, um really, because there's such a small proportion of um, a, contribu- a contribution contribution to uh, to three m's bottom line. But here we are now where it's not just a a health issue. It is an economic issue. It is a geopolitical issue. We we produce a lot of these masks in China. Um, as you know, the U.S. government imposed Defense Protection Act. So it becomes a very multi-pronged um, uh, issue um, and has become very multi-pronged in many different ways. I'm picking on 3M, but you know you can imagine for a pharmaceutical company like Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or Merck, it's, it's similar types of uh, complexities that have emerged. I mean, I think we all acknowledge, and uh, I just, this next point is really just to underscore the complexity. I mean, um, delivery, the logistics and distribution of a mask, which is, you know, durable and doesn't require refrigeration is hard enough um, in a world that, uh, you know, has many uh, borders and barriers and, and lots of the macro issues that we all know. Um, and so having um, the, uh, the advent of, of uh, COVID, Um, And, you know, really this wonderful um, ability for us to turn around and to deliver private sector to help deliver um, uh, on vaccines is great. But, you know, let there be no doubt here that there is a lot of challenge in terms of logistics and and distribution. So in a nutshell, I would say um, I I am very um, heartened by the ability to showcase private sector um, contributions. They, They clearly cannot do it on their own. Um, and so, you know, rather than focus only on regulatory environments, I think, you know, government and, as I said, multilateral academics, as well as private sector have come together, um, very solution oriented. And look what we've done. In, we've delivered in, in one year um, a, a, a portfolio of uh, viable um, vaccinations for something that usually takes seven to 10 years.
1: Well, so well-
2: we need some credit for that as, as a society.
1: High-income countries—they've been able to to support businesses during the the lockdowns and during this this massive kind of recession, depression, whatever you want to call it—have low-income countries had that same ability? And do you worry that uh, if they haven't, that the private sector companies there are sort of weakened, and and that may impact the rollout of the vaccine?
2: Yes I am worried um, you know I, I serve on the boards of many multilateral you know multinational uh, um, country uh, uh, companies and this is an issue you know uh, you know it and by the way it's not just an issue about um, you know recovery economic recovery and jobs in developing countries I mean we are dealing with a, an acceleration in digitization in the west which could lead to enormous technological uh, unemployment. So this is front and center for sure and um you know I uh, I you know I, I don't um pretend to have an answer but what I I do think um, is going to be important is coming to these issues um in a in a much more constructive way than perhaps we have in the past and if I think of the example of something like climate change I think there's been so many um fishers and and sort of, um, so us versus them type of discussions. And what uh, COVID has shown is that we need to come to a watering hole, you know, whatever. And I I think Henrietta made the point, whatever our um, political leanings or um, ideological views, we have to solve this. This is a global problem and these are global problems, whether it's healthcare, societal challenges or, or, or economic, we've got to come together to solve this. There is no other way out.
1: Axel, I'm curious. Your thought. Obviously, you're very passionate about uh, equitable access for the vaccine. Do you worry about a, a, a world where the, the higher income countries have a successful rollout of the vaccine, their companies, you know, the, the workers come back to work, the, the companies resume operations back to normal or a new normal, and, and the, develop, the developing world is, is left behind?
3: Well, I think we have to differentiate. There are differences. Uh, You see uh, um, countries like in Asia have been maybe less affected, like I'm thinking about uh, Vietnam. Uh, But then uh, you see Latin America uh, being badly affected, but they have been taking already also action. So you will see a very differentiated uh, answer. What the challenge is for the bank, and I think uh, for other organize, international organizations as well, is to do our utmost to facilitate the access to 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 uh, vaccine, to see how we can help normalize this. Uh, this is only one step. The vaccines. Uh, the other steps are really uh, looking at the longer term uh, uh, recovery. Um, uh Kevin mentioned this whole global recovery plan for education this is uh, it, this is going to cost and the fallout of this crisis will be fe- uh, felt for years so we cannot say look vaccine will be the panacea it will be only one element in a very long uh way uh, of uh, of recovering the world economy but also getting all these countries back on track with regard to the sustainable development goals and see if we can make up lost space. And and this is the big challenge and we will have to work very closely
1: with each other. Folks, I think we're out of time, but incredibly grateful to each of you for taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts over the past hour of conversation. Thanks so much.
0: That was the World Bank's Managing Director of Operations, Axel van Trotzenberg, Henrietta Foray, the Executive Director of UNICEF, economist and author Dambisa Moyo, and Kevin Watkins, the CEO of Save the Children.
1: Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Development Podcast, our first in 2021 and our anniversary episode. Raka has been stuck with me for a whole year in this audio booth. Can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you who've been stuck with us since January of 2020, thank you so much. And for those who are just joining us, welcome. We hope you really like the show.
0: And as always, we want your feedback. We're always trying new things with the show. So please let us know you know what's working, what are you interested in, what should we be doing differently? Email us at thedevelopmentpodcast at worldbank.org.
1: Yes, we read every message. I personally get super excited when I see email coming in on that account. So send us one over and, and let us know what you think. But in any case, that's it for this episode. We'll see you again in a few weeks. Thanks so much for being here. Goodbye.
0: Bye.